I can uh, speak from personal experience what a great job the youth group does on uh, yard work and so on. Uh, we had uh, Patty at her place uh, has a, about uh, her, a small bush of ash trees, and if you know emerald ash borer, what it's done to the trees. So on uh, this past week, we had a, a service come in and cut down about 20 trees. So you can imagine all the tops and everything that needs cleanup. And thank, big thanks to Gary and Marine who came and worked on Friday, cutting off tree limbs. And then uh, yesterday, the youth group came. We had uh, seven youth and Rob and worked hard in the afternoon and got all the limbs that were cut cleaned up. So a wonderful, did a wonderful job. Highly recommend them to anybody else that happens to have any yard work you need done. They're raising funds for all Ontario Youth Convention. Signs of spring are among us. Uh, how many have seen robins? Okay, a few, they are there. Patty opened the patio doors this morning and we heard red-winged blackbirds, so we used to get them about a, a week before the robins came, just depends where you are probably. Another irrefutable sign of spring, as I was driving here, I noticed uh, somebody out in a gator-type vehicle pulling up the signs of the snowmobile trails. I'm sorry, you snowmobilers. <laughs> oh, glad to see you're all here, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on this daylight savings morning. You remembered last night that your clocks spring ahead and went to bed one hour earlier just to be ready and alert for this morning sermon. God or not. <clears throat> Ah, the good we know we ought to do, but don't always do it. Sin is so much like that. Paul spends a whole chapter on that dithering in Romans 7. Our behavior doesn't always match up with what we know would be God's ideal for us. Something goes wrong inside. Speaking of clocks, many years ago a famous preacher had a clock in his church that was well known for its inability to keep the time accurately. Sometimes too fast, sometimes too slow, it resisted all attempts to solve the problem. Finally, after its dubious fame became widespread, the preacher put a sign over the clock which said, Don't blame the hands, the trouble lies inside. How true that is of people. The trouble, real trouble lies deeper than what shows on the surface. Today's passage from Romans 1, the Apostle Paul outlines the problem within us, why our operation doesn't always match up with the designer's intention. The root of sin is our rebellion against our maker. But he also hints at the cure, how the clock hands can be set right again, God's power to save through the good news of Jesus. And uh, speaking of clocks, I did not have time to do all my putting the scripture into the slides, so I would ask you to uh, resort to the time-proven method of getting your Bible out, and maybe if you're a couple, one hold the Bible and the other do the outline notes or something so old-fashioned as that. It really does work. These, these things called books, you know, we do use them sometimes. We plan to spend the next few weeks in the book of Romans, so a few words about it overall first. It was probably written about 57 AD on Paul's third missionary journey from somewhere near Corinth in Greece to the mostly Gentile church in Rome in Italy where he had not yet been. He was possibly on his way to deliver relief money that had been collected in the outlying mission churches to poverty-struck believers back in the church at Jerusalem. The book of Romans stands out amongst the other epistles in its thoroughness and orderliness. 
many of the other letters, Paul was writing in response to things that were happening at that particular location, fighting ecclesiastical fires in Corinth, expressing a thank you in Philippians, extending a passionate plea on behalf of an escaped slave in Philemon, or rebuking believers who were being tempted by legalism, the Galatians. But in this letter or epistle, Paul seems to have been able to sit down, take his time, and set forth in a well-thought-out and systematic, clear manner a, a very readable and coherent summary of the Christian faith. It's a real treasure. The first 15 verses constitute the letter's address and some introductory pleasantries. Verses 1 to 7 are kind of like the, the address part before they had envelopes and that sort of thing like we do these days with Canada Post. You could unroll the, let the document and see who's it to. It's kind of like a from and to label. You'll notice Paul can hardly introduce himself without making it ultra clear exactly who he is and what he's about, namely the good news about Jesus. Set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand, he says. And he goes right into Jesus' mission and resurrection. And again, in verse 9, he refers to, quote, God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son. That's what Paul is all about, getting this message out there. He's the kind of guy you think might even try to summarize the gospel and write it on the postage stamp if he could. He just wants to let people know. So verses 8 to 14 convey general pleasantries about his awareness of the believers at Rome, how he's praying for them and his plans to visit them in the near future if circumstances permit. Verse 10, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. Paul not only has something to share with them, he wants to give them a chance to build into his life. As an apostle, he's obliged to evangelize everywhere to all types of folks. Verse 15, that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. As Paul begins to unpack his orderly account of his main life message, there's a, a backbone of reasoning that ties this initial passage, verses 16 to 27 that Boris read earlier, together with logic connectors such as since, verse 19, for, verses 20 and 21, and therefore, verse 24. A starting point to make sense of it would be the predominance of God's self-revelation in verses 19 and 20. A common objection to the Christian message is the query, what about those who've never heard the gospel? As if God would be unfair to condemn those who'd never heard about Jesus Christ. But between here and chapter 3, Paul goes step by step through various groups of people, Gentiles, critical moralizers, also the Jews, to show that everybody is accountable to God. We've all fallen short and sinned and are worthy ultimately to be shut out from God's presence. We are without excuse. God is fair and righteous to do as he does. As Abraham framed the question back in Genesis 18.25, when divine visitors announced the impending destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, will not the judge of all the earth do right? God is fair. He's given everyone a chance. He's not capricious or prejudiced in his actions. What ought to have been evident to anyone is God's excellence and praiseworthiness as deduced from what's called general revelation, that is, by looking at the world around us. 
when your breath is caught by a crystal clear starry night sky or the rosy hues of a picturesque sunrise or sunset. Did you happen to see the full moon setting in the west this morning? It was just beautiful. When you hear the first sounds of a bird in spring and realize they've been guided by their migratory instincts over thousands of miles and countless generations, and that there's something inside you that appreciates that beauty rather than just going blindly on your way without even noticing it. That's the awesomeness of general revelation. When tourists stand mesmerized by the thundering power of Niagara Falls, when a university student peers into a microscope and is fascinated by the intricate design of the simplest microorganism, nature points us to the majesty of the creator. Everyone has seen these pointers to God's goodness and glory, so have no excuse for turning away. Romans 1.19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This is the NIV, so it may not be exactly what you're seeing in New Living Translation, but it's similar. God made it plain to them. He's blessed us with faculties of reason and conscience. Even our capacity to raise the question of whether God is fair points to something he's hardwired within people. Why do we even raise the question? All cultures have some criteria of morality and law and order and consequences. We'll see more emphasis on this inner gift of conscience and morality a bit later in 2.15. It says, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them, end quote. But for now, Paul's emphasis is on the role the external world of creation plays. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. It would be hard to stand and look at the worldview worth its salt has to try to answer four basic questions. Origin, destiny, meaning, and morality. Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's the purpose of life? And what's right and wrong? As a person, we know that in terms of where did we come from, what we see around us did not originate with us. The more we understand about science, the more one is amazed with the intricacy of the mechanisms of life and the orderly scope of what we call laws that govern even the orbits of largest bodies and solar systems. The anomaly of water and hydrogen bonding. So plants have effective radiators by capillary flow and ice rises to the top rather than sinking to the bottom. We know we didn't make that up, so who did? Who set it all in motion? Thoughtful observation of nature points us to one bigger than ourselves. We see intelligent design that reflects a vaster intelligence than our own limited smarts. So Paul can say God's eternal power, his ability to set up nuclear forces and Niagara Falls and that huge atomic furnace hanging in the middle of nowhere that we call the sun, and divine nature, intelligence, purpose, orderliness, beauty and glory, can indeed be understood, deduced, guessed at, from what has been made. Other biblical passages underscore this. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. They're broadcasting it day and night. 
what the seraphim in Isaiah's vision were calling to each other in Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. How Paul approached non-Jewish audiences in Lystra in Acts 14, 15, and 17. The living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them, he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. God testifies about himself through the good things we've experienced in the natural order around us. But how have we responded to these pointers embedded in creation and in our own constitution, conscience, sense of morality? Like the stiff-necked Israelites in the Old Testament, we've repeatedly sinned and rejected God's way and rebelled and gone our own way. Our boastful pride has gotten the better of us. As 1 John sums up classes of sin in 1 John 2.16, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Boastful pride of life. Succumbing to worldliness, our fallen carnal nature has pulled us away from God, as verses 21 to 23 in Romans 1 outline. Verse 21a, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. We knew God in the sense of knowing about God from looking at the created order, but not in the sense of knowing him relationally. We chose not to glorify him or be appreciative or thank him. In fact, we thumbed our noses at him, insisting on doing our own thing. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Wisdom. Here there are strong hints of the story of the fall back in Genesis 3. How did the serpent tempt the woman? Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How did the woman find the fruit appealing? Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, as did Adam when she gave it to him. New Living Translation, Romans 3.22, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. We think we're pretty hot stuff. We suppose we can outsmart God. We believe the serpent's lie. We swallow it whole as bolus. But the Bible repeatedly views such wisdom as foolishness. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They're corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There's no one who does good. Paul actually cites that verse later in 3.12. When we start to define God out of our world, our, our thinking starts to get twisted. What ought to be the central point of reference is missing. So we end up skewing the map to put ourselves there instead. Romans 3.21b. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The mind is our thought processor. The heart, biblically, is the seat of our decision-making, our willing and choosing, and that's darkened, charred by the fire of our passion for independence and self-determination. Jesus listed many evils that come from the heart in Mark 7, 20 to 23, verse 23. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean, he said. Bereft of the concept of God, our, our sinning souls still have a gnawing sense that we need to worship something to have a meaningful sense of values and purpose. 
So we cast about for alternatives. We devise substitute gods, custom-crafted to reflect our own human passions projected onto the supernatural, which in turn provide an open door for genuine evil spirit beings to inhabit. Romans 1.23, and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Paul's preaching sparked a riot in Acts 19 in Ephesus when the way began to challenge the market for images of the locally worshipped goddess Artemis. Today we're still fascinated with images. Often people seem tied to the images on their phones. For the user of pornography, their electronic screen can be the hollow shrine he or she worships, the idol that captivates them. Or maybe it's the images of fashion or, or body image, You've got to have that certain look. Or seeing the latest and greatest technical gadget, you simply must have. What images fascinate you most? Turning away from God, there follows a sellout, an exchange. We give ourselves away. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Created things what our own hands have made, our own conceits and passions, what our superstars promote, oust our creator from his rightful place in our lives. John Stott comments that sin is the attempt to get rid of God, and since that is impossible, the determination to live as though one had succeeded in doing so. This past week, the White House released an image of Vice President Mike Pence and newly appointed coronavirus task force with heads bowed in prayer during a meeting. This drew scoffing from unbelievers. Christian Post reports Hamant Mehta, who writes for Pathos.com's Friendly Atheist blog, wrote that it's not a joke when people say these Republicans are trying to stop a virus with prayer. What else did anyone expect, Meta asked. Science? Reason? Something sensible? Of course not. If this virus truly becomes a pandemic, we're at the mercy of people delusional enough to think their pleas to God will fix the problem. The same God who presumably created the virus, at least in their minds, will somehow make sure it hurts only a handful of Americans and a ton of Chinese people, end quote. Psalm 53.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So we have the creator's majesty and glory revealed in all the earth, yet the the human's response of turning away to worship gods of our own design. How does the creator respond to being rejected, snubbed? Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. We believe the lie. We suppress the truth. This incurs God's wrath. How? Paul's not talking about fire and brimstone. He's not talking about judgment on the day Christ returns or about eternal fire in hell. How does God express his wrath here and now subtly? Paul says it's being revealed. Note in verses 24, 26, and 28, the little phrase, God gave them over to sexual impurity, verse 24, to shameful lusts, verse 26, to a depraved mind, verse 28. Essentially, in response to our rebellion, God's saying presently, okay, have it your way. 
and abandons us to the path we have chosen to experience the effects of worshiping whatever lesser God we've allowed to entrance us. C.S. Lewis wrote, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. So the subtle expression of God's wrath here and now is this giving over of us to the ravages of sin. He abandons the disobedient to the fetters of the natural course of sinful behavior. The principle of sowing and reaping in Galatians 6-7 comes into play, which says, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Colloquially, the parallel expression might be, you made your bed, you lie in it. Thus, in sin's fallout, we may encounter a tiny yet passive foretaste of God's wrath at the day of judgment and on into eternity. Hmm. Will we heed the blinking idiot light? When we turn away from God, any self-control through the Holy Spirit is lost and our baser sins tend to become more prominent and clamber to take over our lives. Verse 21, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. This leads to verse 23, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images, which tend to be related to fertility gods and goddesses with associated promiscuous worship rituals. Oh, where did those come from? We start to become enslaved by our passions. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Sex is one of the most potent passions because it involves the body's own chemistry to produce exquisite fleeting pleasure meant to undergird marriage and bond with superglue, the union between a husband and wife. Sin shunts this in distorted and destructive directions. Bodies are degraded. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And likewise in verse 27. Note the frame of reference is in the context of creation, how we are formed and made and designed, physically built, as Jesus highlighted in Matthew 19.4. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's not about what I define to be my personal preference or flavor that's appealing to me, what the creator's intention and design were for male and female. In closing, we're back to the beginning. Verse 16. The gospel is the power by which God can save people caught in sin's clutches. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The gospel, or literally good news in the Greek, is a, a good spiel, good message or proclamation that carries God's actual power with it. Remember when we're talking about why I believe the Bible, how God's word is different from our human words because God's word carries with it the power to bring into being that which it announces. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, deliverance, preservation, rescue from this mess we've brought about through disobedience, the breakdown of the social order, uh, the tensions we see in, in all around in culture. 
uh, and from God's righteous judgment at the end of the time. He wants to rescue us from that too. We, we need his power to become new creatures, to be transformed into Jesus' likeness, born again. How can we be saved? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Believing for Paul is more of an active thing than a static one. What are you trusting in? Whom are you leaning into? What are you resting your future and life goals upon? Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you believing in him? Are you trusting him to be your Lord? Not just Savior, not just a fire escape, but Lord in control, directing your actions. That takes real trust. For Paul, genuine faith results in obedience. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Verse 17 kind of summarizes Paul's major themes in this book. Romans 1.17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He's uh, quoting um, back there, I just forget which Old Testament prophet, but, or, or the righteous by faith will live. And in chapters 1 to 8, he deals with kind of how we become righteous by faith, and then from chapter 12 on, it's how we live it out, kind of the application. Sin has upset the apple cart. God can rescue us. Get the apple cart back right side up and on track. This happens by faith from first to last, from start to finish. But this raises a problem, a real puzzle. How can a holy God forgive and make righteous, miserable sinners that have shunned him, rebelled against him, and become ensnared in the mud and muck of their shameful lusts and degradation? God would not be just if he simply forgave all sin and wrote it off, would he? Doesn't justice require evildoers to be punished? What happens to any sense of meaning and morality if all the bad guys get off the hook scot-free? Paul will return to this naughty problem in chapter 3. There is no free lunch, morally speaking. Somebody's got to pay. As we see Jesus' role in this, it can heighten our appreciation for the magnitude of what he accomplished at the cross on Good Friday and the triumph of his resurrection at Easter. Uh, have any of you seen the movie Les Miserables or the musical or that? Yeah, okay, so this might draw, draw some memories for you. If you've seen the movie, there's a memorable scene where he escaped fugitive Jean Valjean. I prefer Liam Neeson, but there's this guy too who's been living peaceably since his escape and encounter with a priest, and now is a, he's reformed as a, a respected citizen and owner of a thriving business. But he's called to help someone pinned by a heavy horse cart, which has a wheel that's come off. The ex-convict uses his near superhuman strength to rescue the victim. However, Inspector Javert, the detective who's on the hunt for the escapee, recognizes the former prisoner because of a similar incident once before a long time ago when Jean was incarcerated. It's a dilemma, dilemma for Jean Valjean. 
should he use his power to deliver the sufferer. If he does, he'll become identified as the convict. If he doesn't, the victim will die. If he does, it may mean he himself will die. Jesus, for love of us, intervened. He put his shoulder to the cross and saved us, even though it meant he became identified with our own sin. It pinned him. It meant he would have to take our punishment and be abandoned by God to torture. But he loves us and will rescue us today if we put our faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of of Jesus and his power to save. Lord, you know where each of us is in relation to you, whether we're turned away or whether we're holding fast. Lord, by your power, work in our lives to show us our need of you, our constant need of you. Help us to take up our cross day by day and follow you and, and trust you, what you have done for us. Thank you for such a 